What's going on, everyone? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we have the great pleasure of sitting down with Joe Foster, founder of Reebok. The story of Reebok hasn't really been told until just recently when Joe released his new book, Shoemaker, in October of this year. If you enjoy this conversation, we highly recommend picking up the book. The link is in the episode description. Throughout the episode, we cover some of what he discusses in the book, but also dive deeper into some of the experiences and insights he's gained throughout his incredible journey. Here we go. So, Joe, I know you grew up in the United Kingdom and, you know, you had a very interesting childhood. And, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about your grandfather and obviously your father. Give us a little bit of history as to who the Fosters are. Well, yes, um, we really have to go back down to 1895, probably a bit earlier than that, too, if we want to start with the family. But 1895 is the is the year my grandfather then was 15 years old, and he made himself a pair of spike running shoes. Obviously, he needed some help to do that. He would actually learned his trade as a cobbler, and he learned this from his grandfather. And his grandfather was about 60 miles away, but he used to spend holidays there, learning how to be a cobbler. But uh, whilst he was there, he saw his grandfather repairing not just shoes, street shoes, but also cricket boots. And cricket boots in those days had spikes in the bottom. They still do. And we just assumed that granddad said to his granddad, uh, why have you got spikes in the bottom? And the obvious response was, this gives them grip when they're on the, on the uh, grass, or when they're running, when they're bowling, when they're feeling whatever. <clears throat> and this, we consider, must have been a light bulb moment for my grandfather because he thought, well, he was a member of uh, his local athletics club and they ran on cinder tracks and sometimes on grass. But he thought, well, if I can put spikes in the bottom of a running shoe, then uh, I'm going to get an advantage. And indeed he did. So that, that was the start of his business because everybody else in the club, uh, seeing his wonderful new shoes that had sort of promoted him well up the field, I think he came a very unlikely second in one race, and that was a bit annoying to his uh, his teammates. So uh, that was the start of his business. <clears throat> so in 1895, that's when he, uh, when he first made his first pair of running shoes. By 1900, he had a business, and that was J.W. Foster. But he knew a, a bit about... Um, influencers because he knew that if he got some leading athletes to wear his shoes that would influence others and he would really grow his business so by 1904 he had a guy called Alf Shrubs who uh, won a race well it was a one-hour race at uh, in Glasgow and he brought three world records in that one race so that really put J.W. Foster on the map and he he then had People coming to him from all around, locally, 50 miles, 100 miles. However, the second generation, we had World War One, And nobody wanted running shoes at that point. So what they were doing then was repairing uh, army boots. And my, my father used to be called scrubbing the boots down uh, that had come back from the, the fields and the water became red. Uh, obviously, with all the blood and whatever that happened in those trenches. Oh, moving on now to 1920, and the 20s, that was, uh, that was Joe Foster's Belle Epoque. That was the, the, the decade. In 1920, he supplied most teams uh, that went to the Antwerp Olympic Games. And during the 20s, he had so many gold medals, lots and lots. And 
I don't know if you can remember the film Chariots of Fire. It's a little bit old now, but it um, there were three athletes, and they were immortalised by that. One was Harold Abrams, the other Eric Little, and Lord Burley. And so throughout the the twenties, that was brilliant. Uh, we come to the thirties, and unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday, which is why. My grandmother insisted, you've got to be Joe Foster. So that's where my name. So I'm the second one. Grandfather was Joe Foster. By that time, there were J.W. Fosters and Sons. Joe, I'm curious, who told you all these stories about your grandfather? Since you said you never got a chance to actually meet him, um, you know, who told you the stories and, you know, what effect did that have on you early on as a kid? Well, it's it's funny because I, I told you he, he he knew all about influence. He knew how to advertise as well, and he used to promote his products because we were in the north of England. Had he had we lived in the south of England, he wouldn't have needed to step outside his door to have people uh, wear his product. But in the north of England, he had to advertise, and it's amazing. I have uh, a book full of his advertising, simple advertising, sim- advertising like. If you don't believe that Fosters are the best running shoes in the world, we'll give you a hundred pounds. You're talking about this very early on in the 20th century, and that must have been a lot, an awful lot of money then. And also these adverts that he put in there, so and so wear my shoes, and he had people say again, you know, I wear Fosters shoes; they're the best pumps you can buy. So this is where the stories come from. Plus the fact that uh, he was interviewed by the newspapers as indeed was my father and uncle during their time. And so the stories are, are, are in, in, the, uh, in the news reports coming from the 1920s. And so this is how we, we put piece together the story. Plus, as Reebok grew, everybody became interested in our history, as, as I did, because until, well, I suppose, until starting our own business as Reebok, we really didn't know that much about the Foster family and its history. Mm-hmm. But, of course, as you start digging deeper and deeper, so it comes out. And uh, so that's where we, we got all our information about uh, Grandfather. Mm-hmm. And being born on his birthday and being named after him, was it, like, expected of you when you were younger to eventually join the family business? Well, I, I guess it may have been. I don't think there was any pressure in that direction. You know, you... you do normal things that kids do and uh, you don't think about much. I did extra. I went to college and I trained as an engineer. So I, I could have joined, well, what is now, I think it's Diablo and Aerospace. But uh, I, what in, in, intervened was, of course, uh, national service. By the time we were, I was 18, my brother's just a bit older than me, we had to do two years of national service. I think the same thing happened in the States as well. They had to do national service. So we did two years of national service, and that took us away from the business. And it was only on coming back from that that we, well, we'd grown up quite a lot. We, we could see the world. We'd, we'd seen something else. And we come back, and we come back to a failing business. They were still making the same shoes we were making in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, where my brother, Jeff, he, he did his national service in Germany. And in Germany, you could see Adidas, Puma, and the changes they were making. And now they were moving forward. So we went in in 1955, came, came, no, in 1953. We came out of the forces in 1955. And we tried over three years to get my father and uncle 
to come together and look, change the business. It needs to go forward. Uh, unfortunately, father and uncle, mm, a bit like Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, didn't get on. In fact, uh, we had to separate them on numerous occasions. Uh, they were just fighting each other. So no chance for the business. Yeah. We couldn't see anywhere where this could go forward. And uh, whereas Rudy Dassler left the Dassler company and set up Puma, <laughs> I'm afraid the Foster family just kept on fighting each other. So by 19, I couldn't help but realize that those parallels when I was reading the book. I was like, this is so similar to the. I was more familiar with the Adidas story, obviously, before reading the book, and I was like, wow, it's so similar. You know, two brothers, kind of just you know at, at odds, and uh, I, I was expecting perhaps your uncle to go or your father to go and start a separate company, but clearly they never did, and you you and your brother ended up doing that. We we ended up ended up leaving the company because that was our only way forward. Uh, we tried. I, I used to have a word with uh, my father so many times, and all he would say, "Look, we, when we are gone, when when Bill's gone, and when I've gone, the company will be yours." And I, I used to say to him, "Peter, Dad, there'll be no business left. This will die before you do, and um, we don't want that. Why don't you?" help us. Uh, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't come. We, we said we could set up a separate company with him, but no, he wouldn't come. So it, it did come to a confrontation um, when we decided, well, that's it. And I had to go and say, look, we're going to leave. We need to leave because we have to set up our own company. Joe, before you went off to the service for a couple of years, how was the business doing? Because I remember you had started working uh, with them and um were things okay i mean were you guys making good money enough to you know not only live but also you know beyond that i mean true success i suppose well i guess in those days we had a car <laughs> and uh, not many families had cars so <clears throat> yes there was some success uh, um there were no real high expectations of where it should be but they were obviously very happy and we were being paid not a lot of money, but we were paid to do the job. So, and, and uh, they did have a contract with Yale University, and they were sending two hundred pairs a month out to Yale. Um, I think it was uh, Mob G and Jack and Frank Ryan. They were they were head coaches there at Yale, and so they were using, I suppose, the the college system and and distributing foster shoes throughout. The USA, and and I know on a few occasions in my early times going over to USA, people did say, "Yeah, yeah, we used to get Foster's shoes," <laughs> but uh, so they had a good business, and it, it seemed to be okay. But what, what of course we I hadn't um, sort of thought about then is that during the twenties, Foster's used to supply every football club in the United Kingdom with training shoes and boots. In fact, the uh, just after the war, the Russian, it was, it was the um, Dynamo Moscow, I think we would call them Moscow Dynamo, the best team in Russia, actually were doing a tour of the UK just after the war, and they came to Foster's to have boots made. So, you know, it was quite impressive, and they were sending shoes, we say all over the world, apart from America, I think it was more or less the English-speaking world, and mainly that which is now the British Commonwealth, Australia, some some countries in Africa. So they they had a quite a nice business, but this was being eroded. I did this at taking the football market completely, and they were taking mm -hmm. the running market. So you know what was left for us was probably the running market, and that's where we 
well, we didn't start there. We actually started in cycle shoes, of all things. But we soon got into the running market. But football, soccer was just beyond us because those were the volumes. And we couldn't do that sort of volume. Joe, when you first started working, you know, even when you were younger in the business, did you have a passion for shoemaking? Or was that something that you just sort of developed over time as you started, you know, becoming more older and I guess like running the business eventually or running your own business eventually? <laughs> well, I guess uh, that if you read the first uh, chapter of the book and if you read that, I'm a lousy shoemaker <laughs> because shoemaking, okay, it's a repetitive uh, job that you have to do. And my brother, Jeff, he was totally happy making shoes. He, he just wanted to run the factory. And I think that's probably one of the reasons we, we never fell out. We, we, we were good friends and we worked together. And Jeff, he just ran the factory and I did everything else. I even designing, but uh, he was happy doing that. So um, being a good shoemaker, was I attracted to making shoes? No, I knew about shoes. And Jeff and I, had got, we also gone to college because what we knew about shoes was what we picked up from the factory floor. But we needed to know more about that. We need to know more about the industry. And so we actually spent time at college. Again, I could make some shoes, but that wasn't my ambition. My ambition was we have a company. We left JW Foster's because we could see there was no future. So we had to build a future. And that was my attraction. That was my area of the business, which took me a lot of places. Where does that come from? Because I couldn't help but notice, and you sort of speak about it in the book, you know, sort of the differences between not just you and your brother, but you and your father and your uncle and, and sort of the way they saw things and the way you saw things. You, you, you seem like such a, I don't know, you have this like optimism that... I don't know. I'm just curious where that comes from. Was that sort of like, the determination to do big things, greater things, make this company as big as possible, as opposed to keeping it small, how, which is what your father and uncle wanted to do? Where does that come from? Was that just innate, or is that something that you know, as a kid, you just wanted, you know, for yourself? Well, we always have a bit of ambition. I did anyway, but I think it's the DNA seems to skip a generation because I'm sure that my grandfather was exactly like that. He started his business and he grew his business. And, you know, I would say they were the largest hand-sewn shoe many, uh, running shoe manufacturers in the world. So he, he had that. And, uh, and I think that's what spurred us on. There's no, we left the company because we, we needed to do something. The Foster company was really going down. So I think it's probably in the DNA somewhere. And like you say, you know, I'm an optimist, even at the worst of times, because uh, I don't see you enjoy having problems, but you do learn an awful lot from problems. And when, when you can pick up on a problem, you learn an awful lot more than you do just making a pair of shoes. Joe, a huge turning point in the book, and I'm certain your life, was that moment that you said, you know, enough is enough, right? My uncle's not listening. My dad's not listening. They don't want to go beyond what you know their comfort level is. So it's time for me to go off on my own and do my own thing. Walk us through you know that thought process and what went into that thought process for you and what ended up happening as a result. Well, I think that, um, as I said, we did national service. So Jeff and myself, we, we were in the scouts when we were young, and there you do some pioneering, you do outside stuff. You learn a lot through scouts. But when we went into the, into the forces, you learn to be independent. 
you, you, you learn to uh, look after yourself and see things differently. You didn't just go home and mother made you tea and this was uh, everything was done for you. No, you had to look after yourself. So uh, when, when we uh, came out of the forces and came into the business and looked at it, well, you know, this was it. We needed, we needed to change it. Uh, and we were young. I was only 23 at that time. Brother was 25. We were indestructible. You know, what, what does it matter? You do this, you either win or you fail, but you never think of failing. You just think, well, it's going to be our, our way of making a business. So I, I think that's that's really the changes that we had. And I, I don't know. I, you know I, I just think maybe college these days or university these days is what most of the kids get their independence from. But I think we grew our independence. And from national service more than anything else because we were away, totally away from the family. We had to think for ourselves. I mean, you do start thinking, well, what shall I do? Um, I got an offer to stay on in the forces and I could have probably taken, become an officer and I had a bit of a thought that maybe flying jets were good because that's what we used to do whilst I was in, in the forces. We used to control uh, fighters over the North Sea from American bases as well as the British bases. So, it was quite good listening to the conversations. <laughs> and uh, so you thought, no, this is an adventure we need. You know, it seems like entrepreneurship is something that has become, I don't know, a lot more prevalent in the last 20 years, 30 years. But I'm curious back then, was was your case sort of special that, you know, your grandfather had started this company and and you already were in that sort of mindset, mindset, or was it common for folks to sort of venture off on their own and, and create companies? Well, I don't think you ever realized or even thought of the word entrepreneur in those days. I think I think it was a question that you either were going to do something uh, or not. You know, you're going to accept life as it is, the status quo, or you saw something. Look, you know, if Grandad could make a company like this, which become world famous, you know. We can probably do the same and maybe even better because in my grandfather's day, all he could influence were other athletes. He couldn't influence the street. That wasn't even a thought in those days. And it was only just because when we left uh, the foster company, Adidas were influencing the street by the promotions and uh, and they, they were duplicate or replica, replica uh, team shirts, which everybody has these days. So we saw a slight change and there was a possibility of growing beyond just performance. Um, but I think most people, you know, I don't know many of, uh, say, my age group that really set up their own company. Mainly you accepted a job and you worked at that job and you were quite happy working at that job. You stayed in Bolton. If, if, as, as you grow a bit, a bit richer, you've got a car. And, of course, the world moved on so fast. Look, we, you know, we, we're talking now thousands of miles apart. We have the, this wonderful computers. You know, we, we have mobile telephones. In those days, we didn't have a computer. The best thing that I got to was a, a calculator that, that could help you work out yeah. a few sums. And that was it. The rest of it was jumping on a plane, jumping in a car. None of this. Mm -hmm. Joe... Tell us the story about when you decided to finally leave uh, J.W. Foster and Sons and go off on your own and how you funded the business. I mean, did you have any money at the time? No, very little money. I, I was married. I bought a house 
in, in those days, you could buy a property for about £1,500, which is very small money, maybe $2,000, that. And uh, <clears throat> whilst it hadn't grown much, we, we sort of had a bit of money, were able to uh, sell the property to get some money. Jeff, of course, he... He, he was a cyclist, so he would go out. He, he didn't spend much money, and he'd got a bit of money saved up. <clears throat> and then my wife's uncle, he was happy to uh, lend us £500, uh, which is not a lot of money, probably $600 in today's money. Well, maybe in today's money, it's a lot more than that. So we had, uh, and, and I persuaded the bank that uh, we needed another £500. So we've got very little money, but we could buy machinery, for really next to nothing. Second-hand shoe machinery was like, you know, well, if somebody will take it away, we can almost pay them. So we could, we could buy second-hand uh, machinery and, and we could rent a very, very old disused brewery uh, for very small money. So we had no money. But as I said earlier, you know, you're indestructible. You know, who needs money? We can earn that somehow. We can do some things. Uh, and so we, we will bit what live in hand-to-mouth. It wasn't uh, – but when, when you're working 12 hours a day, what do you spend your money on? Just a bit of food and whatever. And uh, both our wives were working, so they were probably earning more than we were in those days. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did you convince your wife? Because I know, I know you guys had just recently been married. How did you convince her that, yeah, you know, I'm going to go off on my own. Everything's going to be all right. Um, and we're going to have a great life, you know? I mean, how, how did you even trick her into that? <laughs> well, I think, I think it was the other way around. I think it was she was so tired and fed up of me moaning every day when I came home. Nobody's listening. Nobody's doing this. When he, that I think she'd rather have me quiet <laughs> and happy and doing something <laughs> <laughs> than continually just coming home and just sort of being yeah. an angry person. I think I was probably an angry person at that point because nobody would, nobody would listen. <laughs> so I think that's what convinced her. And uh, again, we were young, so you know you can yeah. get something, and you can live beyond that. You can live anywhere. You can do anything. But we were young and uh, inexperienced. But you know, we had that ambition. Mm -hmm. And so you know, you, you you went off and started the company. It was, it was called Mercury Sports, right? Correct at the right. at, at Correct, first. Yes. Yes, and and this was it was interesting because you know this was also you mentioned entrepreneurship being like this buzzword that's sort of come after, and 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 this whole concept of venture capital didn't even really exist back then either. So you had to start a business the old-fashioned way, and you sort of talk about those early cash flow challenges that inevitably any business would face if you don't have you know millions of dollars to sort of play around with at first. And so, do you think that that kind of business is like sort of a lost art these days? Because it sounds like you know these days most a lot of businesses, especially technology businesses, they'll raise a, you know millions of dollars before they even go out and you know get get revenue just to get those early users and whatnot. And so it's just like this like sort of different business model that I don't you know you don't see as much these days. I don't think you do see as much, but you know entrepreneurs they, they can start off with very little money. I don't know if you've heard of Jim Radcliffe. Jim Radcliffe now has a company which is worth about eighty-five um, billion pounds or dollars. Eighty-five billion of anything is pretty big, um, and and he, <laughs> and he mortgaged his house, and he, he had to sort of work with his wife and work on it. That oh, well, look, we've got to take this chance. But you know, he'd grown he'd learned all about chemistry and chemicals and whatever, and so he got him by buying a very small chemical company and just taking away all the costs but you know he took a risk 
And I think the, the big thing is no matter how much money you can borrow, I think it's the entrepreneur takes a risk. You, know, you, you can ask as many people, should I do this? Should I do that? And most people would turn around and say, you must be stupid. Why do you want to do that? You know, you haven't got the money. You just plunge, you're going somewhere and there's no, uh, there's no guarantee. Well, the entrepreneur doesn't have a guarantee. He takes a risk. Yeah. And, I, and I think that is still around. I think entrepreneurs do take risks. And, uh, but, you know, we, we're looking back down in the 1950s. The money was different. And like you say, there, there was no venture capital. Uh, nobody had helped you. It was like the bank was there and the bank wanted all sorts of security. <laughs> if you had security, you're all right. If not, you know, you just did what we did. Mm -hmm. So you finally launch... And one of the coolest stories for me was the name, right, um, of how that happened and, you know, all the trademark issues that you dealt with, dealt with. The best part of that story for me was, I think it was around that time where you said something to your uh, the patent agent about wanting to, I think, beat somebody or beat the United States or so something of that nature. I don't remember exactly what the words were, but I'm curious, what did you mean by that? And what, what was that um, result of? Well, I don't remember saying wanted to beat the United States. The only thing I ever wanted to do was to get into the United States. And that is another story. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The reason for getting into the United States is that was a big market. You know, we, we did a little bit of a study and we, we sort of, you know, if you class United States market as 100, the nearest to that was Japan and Germany. And they were in the 20s. The UK was somewhere like 15 to 18. So we were small. And, you know, it, it's... Right. The, the USA influences so much. If you can get into the USA, and this is this is what I knew we had to. Okay, with a very big market next to us, the whole of Europe, we could, but the whole of Europe, different cultures, different languages, and very difficult to, to break into. The, the unfortunate thing about, um, about being British and speaking English is that most of the Western world, now we did a good job at, Everybody speaking English. You know, the whole of America, you've got, we had then about 350 million people in America. And, and compared with, with Europe, Europe may have been 400 million people at the time, but they all spoke different languages. They didn't have disposable income. But there was disposable income in America. It, it was a, the obvious market that we needed to get onto. And the other big slice of luck that we had is that sport never had a downturn. There's never been a depression in sport. It kept on going. People were worried about depressions. Except for worried. 2020. <clears throat> well, yeah, 2020 is indifferent. <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think that's uh, that's depressed everything. Although there's a lot of people making a lot of money. And I mentioned yep. Jim Radcliffe. I think Jim Radcliffe's making a lot of money because he's in the chemical industry. There's a lot of people making money. The food people are making a lot of money these days. Because, And, of course, you know, everything's changed now. The, the retail business yep. has changed. Everything now is uh, it's bought online. So people are doing deliveries and whatever there. But, yeah, I think the, the sports business has, has obviously taken a hit. Um, but they're starting to play sport again now. And, you know, now we've got vaccines uh, coming out of our ears. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, give us another six, nine months. And I think, you know, we'll be, we'll be back to doing the things that we were doing. Although if, there's been so many changes and so many advances in technology now. This, this sort of technology is just going away with fantastic. You, know, you can see the day when you don't need to go to a stadium, that you'll almost be in a stadium. You'll be living in, in your own home. 
you know, these things are going to come. But uh, that's technology, and that's right. the future. But uh, yeah. So but you know the interest. You know, Joe. The interesting part is, you know, things like running and cycling and stuff like that. That was a thing back then. Still hasn't gone out of trend now. Where you, you know, whether there's a, a pandemic or not, you could still go out on the streets and run and walk and cycle and do those outdoor activities. I mean, I know you guys started off in the cycling space um, when Reebok first launched, but I'm curious. I mean, how did you end up progressing from there and branching out? To beyond just cycling shoes, um, you know how did how did Reebok's progression look like in the first three to five years? Well, in those in those early days, whilst uh, Jeff was uh, just looking after the factory, he was also very keen a keen cyclist, and uh, he was also a keen runner. So he was a member of the local athletics clubs and the local cycle clubs. So that's where we first started getting our uh, our customers and. And once you're into that, it's a cl- quite a close community, and so that grows. Uh, and of course, we were very, very fortunate with the, with running. Whilst I went to uh, try and sell my shoes through retailers, sports shops, <clears throat> I would go into a sports shop and uh, say, oh, "I'm Reebok," this is, and they'd look at me quizzically and say, "Reebok, who's that?" And I'd explain to everything, and then they'd come back with, "Well, look, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok?" And that question was, that question really got to me. Why? Well, they didn't need Reebok. So, because they were not the end user. I needed to get to the end user. And the end user was a runner. And we were quite close to runners. But in those days in, in the UK, there was a three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association produced a handbook. And then it was about 500 clubs all affiliated. And we had the name and address of every secretary of every club in the country. Didn't need to think much about that. Everybody got a letter, and uh, we asked if anybody wanted to be an agent, we'd get 15% discount. They could either take the money or give it to the club, whatever. We got hundreds, hundreds of agents. And once we started to grow, the retail sports shops started to call me. Look, you're supplying these shoes to clubs. Uh, we'll, you know, We could sell you shoes if you stop selling clubs. To the clubs, and I said, "Well, I'm very happy to supply you, and I'll supply you at a wholesale price. Uh, I don't, I don't supply direct at wholesale. We give a slight discount." I said, "But I'll supply you, but I will not stop doing what I'm doing." <laughs> and surprisingly enough, about seventy percent of the retailers started then to do business with us. So it's 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 finding the different ways to break through. The same with America. The, uh, the Board of Trade, that's, a, that's the English government, they decided that they wanted uh, sports companies to do exports. And uh, so they said, look, we, we will fix you up with a stand at the American NSGA show, which is a national sporting goods show, and that was in Chicago. We'll fix you up with a stand, we'll pay your return airfare, and we'll pay 50% of your uh, hotel bills. Well, it was cheaper than living at home to do that. So uh, off we went. Mm. And... And that was in 1968, my first trip. It took me until 1979 to get what I wanted, and that was a distributor. But it was the same mm-hmm. with the UK. I needed to get to the to my customer, and my customer is a runner. And fortunately in those days, running was growing tremendously in, in America, but also Runner's World was a fantastic Bible. That was a magazine. Everybody bought the magazine. Everybody believed what was in there. Bob Anderson was great at, uh, at telling the story. And, uh, of course, he started rating shoes. 
and I knew that if we could get into the ratings, then I would find a distributor because the customer would want our product. And we did get there, but we went through a few different things before Bob Anderson started doing a a star rating instead of a single rating. And we we needed five-star shoes, so I designed a five-star shoe. I knew exactly what we needed. And okay, a bit of a gamble that you saw confidently. You know you're going to have the right shoe, but we did. And in 1979, we got not only one five-star, we also had, and that was for the uh, the road shoe, and that was Aztec. And that was our big, big breakthrough. We had the Aztec, it was a five-star shoe. We also had a Spike, Inca was a Spike, that was five-star, and our racing shoe. That we had that. That's a road racing shoe. That had a five star as well. So, going getting into the American market, I needed that because people would see that. And uh, Paul Fireman came out also wanted to uh, distribute our shoes. I wanted to take our shoes. They wouldn't distribute them. They wanted twenty five thousand mm-hmm. pairs, but uh, that that was too big for our existing production. Even though I'd already made arrangements with Barter that uh, they could start making our shoes. Um, and they wanted a better price, which again we knew because again things were going out to the Far East, and you could get a, you could get the product at less than half the price. So that was when everything came together. We got Paul Fireman. Yeah, he was more like me. He was he was sort of uh, happy to go along, grow nice, you know, do it nice and steady, um, uh, and and grow with us. Uh, so that was great. Biggest problem I had at that point was my brother died. My brother uh, never saw it. He died in 1980, just as we'd hit the American market. So there was a lot of different things to to look after at that point, which included a factory. But since we were moving... And he was a young guy, right? Pardon? I was... He was a young guy when he passed, right? Yes. He was 46, which is young. Hmm. uh, Very young. Mm -hmm. And... But unfortunately, he, he was an athlete who uh, he pushed himself too far, always. Uh, you know, we used to go, when he was sighting, we used to go and pick him up after he'd done the sight. And he would be physically sick after the race. He'd gone, pushed himself so hard. And I think that had a big, uh, I think that was the reason, the cause, because he died with stomach cancer. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, it, uh, <clears throat> it probably doubled my sort of uh, ambition or desire, need to make the company really work. And uh, <clears throat> as I say, you know, he looked after the factory, but what he would have been doing then was probably transferring all the patterns and things to Barter because we did have a problem with Barter. And maybe that problem wouldn't have happened had Jeff been mm. doing that job, looking after the product. But uh, say, unfortunately, that happened at that time. But at that same time, America was just taken off, so everything was, but yeah, everything was just exploding. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, in those early days, perhaps even before um, in getting into America, how did you go about designing and innovating new shoes? It seems like the, these days, like every year, there's hundreds of shoes that come out, new shoes, and I don't know how much of that is just innovation or just different designing. But how did you go about doing it? Was it just seeing what was trending and sort of trying to cater to that or was there more to it well in those early days we didn't have the same sort of volumes now like you said there's new shoes every week now Uh, and that's because the market has got so big we were talking about um, adidas and nike being probably 
up to one, one and a half billion, you know, progressively. Um, now they're, they're both in the mid-20s. I think Nike now is probably at $30 billion. <clears throat> to do that, you, you need to expand your range. You've got to expand your range. But in, in those days, in those early days, no. If you if you had a good shoe, it would be there for a year because we were really focused uh, on the uh, on the performance. Unfortunately, <clears throat> that performance sort of just uh, just slipped over into street uh, and has done has influenced street uh, really ever since we started. We we grew, but our biggest growth, of course, was when Arnold Martinez came up with uh, the aerobics. <laughs> I mean, that was really the big one. Because most of us were doing very well, thank you, with running. And we were. We were uh, expanding very nicely. <clears throat> Arnold was a tech rep down in L.A. And uh, his wife, Frankie, she was going to these aerobic uh, classes with her girlfriends and coming back, and they were full of it. And Arnold said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, she said, well we're exercising to music. So he went down there to have a look at what was going on. He saw these women, the instructors in running shoes, half the class in running shoes, and the others, no shoe at all. And uh, so he had this thought, why don't we make them a, a nice, white, soft shoe? Women will love it. And they did. Came back to Paul Fireman and said, Paul, look, down there in L.A., we've got this new trend that's coming on. Paul wasn't interested. What? You know, we're doing so well in running. Why, why do we want to make a few shoes for somebody down there in L.A.? What's going on? Anyway, <clears throat> Arnold didn't, uh, didn't rest at that. He went round to the back door yeah. to the uh, production people and said, can you get me 200 pairs of the a shoe made with the very nice lightweight leather? Uh, and they did. And he distributed them. And that was aerobic. Of course, half of those shoes fell apart because they were making them out of glove leather. And glove leather is so tender. That it, uh, it just couldn't yeah. stand the, the manufacturing. We got over that. But that's when Reebok, no, not known very big in the United States, known a bit in running because we were doing a nice trade. But Adidas and Nike, they were male, sweaty. All of a sudden, women had this wonderful shoe that uh, was just made for them by this new company, Reebok. And all of a sudden, the, the company became a woman's company because the explosion. So the, <clears throat> we were doing about $9 million, and that went from there to uh, $30 million and $90 million, $300 million, uh, and up to $900 million in successive years. The expansion was incredible. And uh, that, yeah. that gave it some other problems. Where do you get the, the money to pay from that? Fortunately, Stephen Rubin had uh, come into into our site by then and he he was financing it because he he had a far east company called asco and they did the sourcing and he gave gave paul a big credit line so that was good part of the company of course as well but um no that, that happened and then where do you get the product because you know it's one thing giving the money where do you get that sort of explosion of product unfortunately at that time nike were just having a bit of a bad time and they were pulling out of yeah. a couple of factories, and that helped. So there's your luck again. You know, the luck was tremendous. And by the time I left the company in 1989, uh, we, were, we were a $3.8 billion company and run by wow. what, lawyers <laughs> and accountants. And, uh, yeah, well, the excitement was over for me. That, you know, that wasn't the excitement. That, at that point, you know, you, you've got a monster. 
Joe, I'm, I'm curious. You've obviously, you know, achieved a lot of professional success, and I think there's still a bit more to talk about there. But you've also had to deal with a lot of personal challenges throughout the way, right? I mean, starting with, you know, having that strained relationship with your father and then your father passing away. Talk to us a little bit about some of those challenges and how you were able to overcome them and how that's made some sort of an impact on you, either positive or negative. Um, and how that's made you a much stronger person, a much stronger founder, a much stronger visionary. Well, you know, people do say, well, what do you regret in life? And I find it very difficult to know what I regret in life because, I, you know, most regrets really are a waste of time if, uh, if you're thinking about them. But the things that, you know, what would you like to change? Well, you know, your father dying is a natural thing, although he did die. Well, it was 70 when he died. Um, <clears throat> it was a shame that, uh, you know, we couldn't have done something together. Um, when my brother died, well, you know, you'd like to change that. And my daughter died eight years after that, which was uh, leukemia. And you, you think, well, you're doing all this, and yet you can't change these things. You know, this is what life is about. And you, you just wish you could. You know, you just wish you could go back or wish you could change, but you can't. You know, it's those are the things that you you can do everything else. You can get a lot of problems. You can see your way through problems. Um, but when when there are things that you you cannot touch, you can't something you can't. Then those are the things you do get stronger because you've got to keep going. Like when my brother died, it was like, well, the business now just needs you, but it needs it needs working on, and so you have to double your efforts to keep going. And it, uh, and, and same with the family. When you know, when my daughter died, it was tragic. You know, you, you think, what am I doing? What's life about? So, you have to work your way around it. You know, there were grandchildren. There are other things. So, there, there's plenty of things in life that that are going on and living. And you just have to concentrate on the living part and making everybody's life as good as you can do. But uh, it's mm-hmm. not those things which you can't change. It's not not easy. Uh, but when, if you can change things, you just get on with it. Yeah. You know, early on, I noticed uh, it, was, it was really interesting. I, I mean, I'm curious how you sort of went about building sort of the culture at Mercury and then Reebok. Because uh, here you were, first time starting a business, hadn't, I'm assuming, led a team before, led people before. But it was interesting, like when you had run into those early cash flow problems and had to lay off, I think you said half of your staff. Some of them offered to stay on and work for free just because they wanted to see the company succeed. Um, and so I'm curious. I mean, that's that's something that you don't see as much and see as often. And so I'm curious how you went about building that the culture in those early days. Well, <clears throat> I think in in those early days that uh, we were relatively small, and and it was quite easy to keep in touch with all the people and the people, the local people to our factory. They they saw the energy. They felt the energy because. We were telling them, they were, they were seeing what was happening. Uh, we were sort of local heroes in, in, the, in the town because we were growing. We were, we were going places. Um, and uh, yeah, I would always talk to anybody at all our factory. In fact, I probably learned that from a person, if you read in the John Willie Johnson. John Willie Johnson, he, he became a really good friend because uh, he, he just loaned me machinery when I needed machinery, whatever. And, I was mind blown uh, yeah, when I read that. Like, just, that's that's <laughs> yeah. crazy. He would just give you like free equipment. <laughs> yeah, 
That's right. But you know, but he was an eccentric. He just would buy anything from sales and whatever. And in those days, as we have said, all shoemaking was going to the Far East. So lots and lots of small companies were going out of business. So there were lots of items that he used to pick up from these sales. Uh, and then I say, you know, I asked him, uh, can I buy this machine? No, 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 no. Can I, can I rent it? Uh, no. I said, I'll let you have it. You can have it. Give it me back when you've done with it. And he, not only that, he would, send, he would send his men with the machines and take them into our place, and they would set them up for me. So he, he was a great friend, and uh, you, you, you don't meet many of those. <laughs> but he was an eccentric. And uh, wow. unfortunately, I was away when he died. Otherwise, I would have gone to his funeral. But once I started moving, I don't think I ever stopped for 10 years. I was sort of at 35,000 mm. feet or meeting with people, doing things, getting, keep things in motion. But those sort of people, they're, they're very rare. But with with your, your company, you talk talk to the company. You, you talk to people. You're, you're inventing new shoes. So we had all our people knew the were part of the business. And this is why I believe you should generate in a business, is you should generate ownership, that they can all feel that they're proud of being part of this this company. You should create the energy in that. And I think you do that by being optimistic, by being always, yes, is what we're going to do. So when we did run into a problem, um, yes, <laughs> so many just said, well, look, I'll either work for nothing. And we said, well, we don't have any work. You know, this is the problem. We don't have the work. So working for nothing doesn't help. We'll, we'll come back. Please get. So it, it, it was good. Uh, you know, it's good not just to give them a letter and say, look, you're fired. No, I had to stand up there and talk to them all, which I think, again, it's like facing something that you, you know you've got to face, but you do it because you, it, it's your duty. And and I think that mm-hmm. when you when you build that within a company, and and if you start with it small, it will grow. And that that sort of energy will grow, and that ownership will grow, and that will become part. So people will love to be part of Reebok. And I've got so many people. Uh, now we've got the book out. I have so many people who send messages and uh, emails and whatever. Wow, great, fantastic! Yeah, I I, I did this. I did that. Do you remember when? So. We've got lots of things that, uh, in fact, I think I've signed about a thousand books already. Uh, <laughs> out of people who, who just want that personal, that personal memory, and uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's uh, that's part of uh, the way you handle your life. Joe, I'm curious when you were working at Reebok, and obviously, you know, just going into work every day and with these people, did you did did it feel like reality or did this feel like it was a dream come true for you right i mean or did you not even notice that in that moment that you know you were building this thing that you know was independent of anybody else right it sure you were inspired by your legacy but it was your own thing you were creating the rules you were creating the product you were doing the marketing right tell us what it felt like to be the founder of reebok well you know, you, I was there 31 years, and a lot of these steps are small steps. And you take that small step and you move forward, and you're just happy at the moving forward. You're happy for doing things. You, you, you're good that, uh, you know, you, you can take it in the direction you want to take it. Uh, but they're all small steps. I think the uh, the last few years when uh, when the explosion and, and 
you know, we, we're doing the uh, Monte Carlo Pro Celebrity Tennis, and we have all the celebrities there. And, and it's incredible. When you've got Frank Sinatra, you've got Roger Moore, you, you've got Sean Connery, and so many more that uh, I, I can't name them. There were just so many. And people like um, John Forsyth, who was Dynasty, and when he comes up to you and shakes you and says, Hi, Joe, how are you doing? And, and I'm saying, John, I've, I've only met you one time before. <laughs> how, how do you remember my name? And he just said to me, Joe, that's my job. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just amazing. that. Uh, and so it, it is at that time when you think, wow, we must have made it. We must have done something right. And, and it's fantastic yeah. to, be, to be in this position. And, and so, yeah, it, it was great, and it's a great time. But, you know, I just ended up uh, all the, so many people in, in the company that it was time for me to step away. And because I was at 35,000 feet two or three times, well, two or three weeks out of every month, I was flying into different airports, being picked up by a limousine, being taken to the, say, the best hotel in town or wherever, and we would have lovely meals and nice conversations and talk generally about the business. And it was at that point, well, sorry, this is not, you know, I was growing this company and that journey seems to have now, I've got to the end of that journey. You know, this is for somebody else to now look after. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I, I don't think I could have remained much longer just with the company doing that. I think I had to mm-hmm. build something, do something. So, you know, as an entrepreneur or whatever people want to call it, it's uh, yeah, it's the it's the energy, it's the challenge. And when the challenge is over, you know, it's time to do something else. So uh, mm-hmm. right now, I mean, what we do, <laughs> now, if it wasn't for COVID, we just travel around Europe. Sometimes we get to America, get to Boston and see it. I mean, the good thing that uh, has happened uh, since Alice has been in charge is that they've opened an archive. They've got the archive. So I was able to take all the bits and pieces that I had, and now they're all in Boston. And they're all nicely preserved in an archive because you, you leave it in your loft, you leave it in whatever, and you think, well, what do I do with this? You know, it, it eventually will sort of get destroyed or eventually get mislaid. So, so it's better. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's good now to have a nice relationship with the archive, and yeah, and see what they're doing, and how now the company goes back into the archive to look at its history and to say, well, what can we make that? We can do this again. So that's that's a good part about it. But uh, I, w- I was happy to move away from day to day. So you said you left in 1989. Uh, so 31 years ago now. Um, did you sell the company at that point? I mean, how did you leave? I mean, what happened? Um, and what did you plan on doing? Well, I uh, i mean, the, the ownership of the company moved before I left. And uh, as far as I was concerned, what we needed to grow was not Joe Foster, but Reebok. It was to get the Reebok, Reebok its best advantage. So that's to get money in. And, of course, people with money need a piece of the action. So getting a piece of the action was, for me, I'd got where I wanted to to see the uh, the company at that time. We were number one. We had overtaken Nike, overtaken Adidas, and we become number one. That in itself, number one global sportswear company. That that was an achievement, probably far beyond anything I'd ever dreamed about. It, even if I did dream that big, but we got so big. So 
for me, it, it was really a matter of saying, this is the goal. The goal is what we're doing with Reebok. Just right now, uh, I've got one, one goal left at the moment. Maybe there's plenty of other goals, but it's to get the uh, shoemaker up to a number one bestseller. Uh, and if we can get that, then fine. It, you know, that's just, you look to achieve something, not just write a book, not just have it out there because, well, you've written what you've done. No, we needed to succeed. So mm-hmm. that's what we do now. And we travel through Europe uh, and meet all the friends, um, go to Italy, go to the top of a nice mountain there, and have some nice wine, look out over the lakes. You know, it, and these these are the things that were so uh, so great during the time when I was uh, putting on distribution and you know growing the global uh, company. Mm-hmm. You know, in the book early on, there's there's a thing that you wrote that um I actually wrote it down because I loved it. it. You said there's only room for one love when your heart is fully invested in your passion. What did what did you mean by that? Can you elaborate? Well, I, I think that um, what it is is that being an entrepreneur and being trying to sort of build something. It was, it was like when I went to see the agent uh, when we wanted the name and we put Reebok at the top. And you know we got Reebok. It was from a Webster's, American Webster's Dictionary, of all things, that I had won in 1943. Uh, and I said to him, look, this is the one we want. I've given you 10 names, but really... We, we need Reebok because we now know we love it. It's a small South African gazelle. Gazelle, that fits what we're doing. But we've got to build this company and we need to be in love with it. You know, we, we need to have that passion that this is what we love. And that way, you know, we'll have a chance of growing the company. If we don't, you know, if we just use any old name, I don't think that would happen. So when when it's, you know, one love, and I think the deep love is is a love for, Everybody within the company, as well as the company, you you, you love the whole thing, um, and it's um, I think it's a passion that uh, to say one love. I think it's the passion that you need in order to develop and grow uh, a brand, and that for me was the one love. Okay, you know you you have people, but you have a lot of people. All all you all your workers, you know you. You've got to show an emotion towards them. That they, they 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 mean something. Mm-hmm. Joe, I'm curious. What have you been doing the last thirty years? Like somebody like you, who's so entrepreneurial, so uh, passionate, so driven. And you were young when you left Adidas. Uh, sorry, uh, Reebok. Right? You were 54, based on my math. Um, you know, what did you what did you plan on doing? Well, you know, it's a, it's a bit like. Um, a bit like the Eagle song, you know, Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. And so <clears throat> for so long, I, I've just been pulled back into Reebok. You know, I don't have a day job. And, and for many years, <clears throat> I didn't have a day job. But I was very happy to, you know, people want an answer for this, what happened here. Um, you know, so it was good to sort of have that relationship rather than to think you had to be doing something. No. You're just keeping people in tune. People wanted to know what was going on. You, you, you go and you address a few of the new workers. Well, you know, they need to know, where did it come from? See, so, you know, this is what I was doing for a long time. Plus, as I say, um, I travel. We you know, travel through Europe and meet up with the people that I put on as distributors, whether it's uh, 
Portugal, Spain, Germany, France, Italy, you know, Switzerland. And, and it's just nice to go meet these people and spend some time with them again. Um, we all can reminisce and, and enjoy it, apart from the times, of course, when uh, I do get to meet with, with Reebok, going to some of the... Uh, um, so some of the meetings they do have, whereas new product meetings and stuff like that. So, so you know, it's uh, no, I've never left really in that in that sense fully, and and so, okay, the older I get, the less I'm I'm going around being meeting people in America, and I, I probably would be over there at least once a year, but for COVID, I I, I would be over there, um, and it's just nice to meet the people. Get to know new people as well. That's that's quite useful, and and hope that you can sort of keep generating the energy. If you can talk about the company and its family, and and, and help the family to remain a family, uh, yeah, that's good. There was one one guy who, who wrote in since we've been saying if you want a book, and he, he's now up in um, in Oregon. He was in Boston on those very early days. And uh, he told me about he's had this problem and that problem, but you know, he said, but but running has sort of been kept me alive, really. And he wanted a book, and he said, write something nice in it. <laughs> so <laughs> it was just a matter of putting a little dedication. Hi Ed, you know, wonderful times. Remember those those days in those early days. So you know, and thirty-one years go by, <laughs> you know. This is what happened. I was 31 years at the helm, as it were, working there and doing things. But the next, the other 31 years, and I don't have to worry too much about what the lawyers mm. are doing, what this is doing. No, I, I can just take the nice bits in and enjoy it. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, being sort of a pioneer in the space. And uh, I'm not sure if you ever saw the athletic footwear or just sportswear industry getting to where it is today. Maybe you did. But like, I'm curious to hear what your, what your thoughts are on that and, and where it sort of goes from here. Like, how do, how does how do these companies continue to sort of innovate and, and uh, create new shoes, like you said, every week these days? And where is that? Where do you think it's going? Well, these days, of course, I don't have to do that. That's somebody else's job to do it every week. <clears throat> I, I did my bit. We, we we got the the company into America. We got it five star ratings, and that that was the takeoff point. And so that's great. Then you you employ designers. I mean, that, that's what they're for. You know, they they come on and they design. They have to think up new ideas. Uh, but the main thing you've got to do is to keep um, uh, keep with the brand, keep honest with the brand, and. and you know, don't change it too much. I think one or two things in Reebok have, have changed. Uh, I think when Adidas came in, you know, they, they all like to do a little bit of changing and so they change the the lettering. Uh, but over the last two years, they've just they have got a, a new marketing uh, head of marketing, and he's just gone right back. Take that away. You know, they, they started using the Delta. No, you know, we're we're known for the vector. We're, we're known for our our name styling. That's it. You got it. I'll never. And, uh, I was going to tell you, I, I, I never was a fan of that Delta. I was like, uh, what, what are they doing? I was like, what's happening here? I want my old Reebok back. It's like, so me and Patrick were born in 1992, and I remember you know, back then like, it was mainly Reebok that we, my parents would wear or like we would wear. You didn't really see Nike and Adidas around. So when I saw there was a period of time, probably in the last what, decade or so, where you didn't really hear much about Reebok or you, the logo was different. The branding looked different. And it kind of got lost on me. And then when I saw this shirt, I was like, wow, I got to get this old branding back. Well, I'm pointing in the wrong direction here, but 
but I just love this look, right? It was yes. so different. Yeah. Well, see, that's, that's what I agree on. It's like you only need to look at Ford. And when I mention Ford, you'll see that oval badge uh, with, with blue and you'll see that writing. It's just there. Now, that's what you need to do with a brand. If you keep changing it, we, we changed our brand for probably a few years just to get it right. It was like honing in on what's right. And once we got it right, that's how it should have stayed. And, and it did stay. And that, that was what people recognized. I know we used the Union Jack. <laughs> and that was good. The Union Jack looked very much like we were using the, uh, the Starcrest. And it was Paul Feynman because when we were in those days, he said, Joe, he said, we're going to grow this company. We're going to get people are going to have to recognize our logo. And he said, but people already recognize the Union Jack. This looks a bit like the Union Jack. Why don't we use the Union Jack? And uh, I said, well, Paul, uh, I think we can use the Union Jack. Back in the UK, though, we will have a great deal of trouble because the unions, seeing a, a shoe coming in from Korea with the Union Jack on it, they, 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 <laughs> they will have us every day. And, and they did. We, we got an awful lot of trouble. It didn't cause us too much. We put big labels on saying made in Korea. But in America, it was tremendous. And uh, those, those very early days, and... Uh, because Paul said, everybody knows the Union Jack. And I was a bit sort of, everybody in America. Yeah, everybody knows the Union Jack. And the, we didn't have point of sales, but what they used to do, the retailers, used to stack the boxes up like a pyramid because the top of the box was the Union Jack. And then they would put the shoes on uh, on the boxes up, up on this pyramid. And it, it was great. It was a wonderful point of sale. Everybody loved that. And, you know, all these things, you add them together, and those are the images. So you, you've got the image, which is the vector, the uh, mototectura lettering, which, which now we're back with that. And, of course, the Union Jack just gives it that connection. So, uh, yeah, you, you don't you don't play about with your brand in that way. And, and I hope that now, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether the book will help if we can get it to... Uh, really sort of take off um, in, in the States, as I knew we had to do with the with the shoe, then that, that again, will influence the rest of the world. Well, it's already mm-hmm. doing quite well. We've quite a good spread. It's going all, all over the world. But, yeah, I, I think we'll get the volume. It is available, by the way, in, in, in America. I think it's the, what they call the yeah. export edition. With, with the, the hardback, I think the hardback comes in January. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and we'll put a link and all that stuff in the description uh, for, for those who are listening who want to get the book. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so you, you talk about all these all these uh, years of just sort of going at going to battle with the likes of Adidas and then eventually Nike and all these like different brands that came out. And then I think it was like 2005 when uh, Reebok got acquired by Adidas. How did how did you feel about that? Like after all those years, did you feel like anything anything about I guess that acquisition? <clears throat> Well, at the time, I think uh, Reebok had been stagnating somewhat. Uh, they hadn't been moving forward. So I think there was definitely a need for different management. And uh, whether it would be Adidas, I, I, I didn't think that going with Adidas would be the best of ideas. And, of course, it wasn't the best of ideas. But, you know, you've you got to say, well, you know, the sell, people sell for money. But Adidas, Adidas mm-hmm. bought it to, to advance their sales in America. I mean, that's what they wanted, and it worked. So what they did, you can't blame them for it. What they did, they bought the company and advanced the uh, the Adidas name because they, they converted a lot of the assets 
over to Adidas. And uh, so that worked for Adidas. But for Reebok, uh, of course, it, it, it allowed... It didn't, well, Reebok didn't go very far. They didn't sort of... They put Reebok at one side and just grew Adidas. And again, you can't blame them for doing that. That's what they spent the money on. I think now they're, they're thinking of uh, divesting. They're, they're sort of talking about uh, selling the brand. Whether they will do or not, I don't know. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Joel, one thing that you know, I'd be curious to hear from you about, and I think we have a lot of listeners who are not yet entrepreneurs, but perhaps want to be entrepreneurs. But you know, you talked about this early on that you know, working for somebody else or you know, not being independent made you angry because you thought you could do better, you thought you could innovate, you thought you can do bigger uh, than what your current situation was. And that affected, you know, who you were as a person. It affected your relationships. Uh, and you could just tell you were just not happy, right? You were an angrier person. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have that same feeling. I think I've been in that position in the past a couple of times. But what's your advice to those that are in that position and perhaps don't necessarily know what to do next, um, but they do know that they're not happy where they are? You know, what would you say to somebody in that position? Well, I think the main thing is, is <clears throat> why are you doing what you're doing that makes you angry? What is it that you're doing? that uh, You're obviously not uh, doing the work, the job you want to. So the thing you need to do is to, is to look around and see if you can find something that you want to. Because, you know, if, if you, you can just go to work. And whether you're happy or whether you're not happy, you take home money and you you have a life which is a domestic life. Whatever. If you want a business life, then usually there's something that uh, energizes you in, in one way or another. And if you can find that, the only thing I would say to anybody is don't hesitate. Go do it. Get on with it. Because you know, a lot of people will say, well, should I do this because, because, because. But you can listen to too much advice. I think the, the best thing to do is to listen to your own feelings. The same with Jeff and myself. We, we were not too worried. We'll be young. And I think this is probably the best thing for being an entrepreneur is to be young. Because you are indestructible. You, know, you can do things and it doesn't really matter. Get on with it. And, and I would say, no matter what your thought is, whether it's just to move countries because you see a better idea, you see something better, wherever it is, do it. You know, just just move. If you fail, <clears throat> it'd be far better that you tried and failed than if you didn't try. You know, you just got to go for it. And if you if you're keen enough, and the other thing is, though, know your business, know as much as you can do. I was never a good salesman. But I could go into a shop and I could talk everything about my product and everybody else's product. And that helped. But, you know, I mean, a good friend of mine was a fantastic salesman. He could sell anything. Uh, but, and those are the guys you really need when, if you're going to sell to retail. You need some guys like that. But, you know, for yourself, it's to, it's to observe. Observe what, what really turns you on. And if something will turn you on, get yourself involved. Get, get yourself some... Uh, uh, experience, because you, you don't know it all yourself. We we had some experience at uh, at Foster's. At first, we we knew how to make uh, athletic shoes, but we we only knew the way they did. But we had ideas, and you know, if you've got some ideas, certainly don't stay where you are if you're angry. I think you've got to move. Mm -hmm. Whatever move it is, I think you. 
going back again to those early days and sort of having this optimism that you had and still have, um, how far were you looking or thinking in terms of even early on when you were just getting the business started? Like, did you envision sort of how big it would get and what it would look like? Or were you just sort of taking one step at a time and going about it that way? I think you can only take it one step at a time because you you don't really know what the market is. You know, you you can see things happening. You you, you see what other people are doing, um, but whether you would ever get there, it's really something you you've got to take that step and get on with it. And I, and I think if you are willing, rather than looking at a, a you know a big, we say ambitious area that you know, you want to be there, you, you're not going to be there until until you do all those steps. So. Don't get in front of yourself too much. Just take it a step at a time and expand. And you, you'll find that some steps take you leagues, miles. Other steps are just tiny ones. <laughs> and you'll find on occasions that you, you slip back down that ladder sometimes. You're not, uh, mm-hmm. you're not always climbing. But, you know, if you, if you keep on looking upwards, keep on climbing. And, and it will happen. But you, uh, you know, no, I, I don't think, you know, it's good to dream about ideas that you're going to be the biggest of this or the biggest of that. But, you know, the reality is day to day, you take those steps. Joe, I think this may be a challenging or maybe tough question to answer, but I'm really interested to see how you or what you would say. But what would you what do you think your grandfather would think about Reebok and what you built and my second question is, what would your wife, Jean, say about you and the person you became after you built Reebok and, you know, kind of the life that you had after that? I think granddad, I think even my father would be delighted, would be absolutely amazed that uh, that right now people around the world can read about grandfather. Uh, they, they can read about his energy and and his successes, I, I, th- I think he would never have even dreamt that, uh, at all that, that that would happen. So I think he'd be absolutely delighted. Um, my first wife, uh, she died about five years ago. Um, we, we, we remained friends. We got divorced because things in life had not worked. Um, but we remained friends. Uh, and right now, I think she would probably expect me to have, to write a book and to tell the story, I, I, mm-hmm. because uh, you know she she enjoyed quite a lot of that story. Uh, okay, you know she went through some of the tough times, but um, you know you, you you just got to look back and say, well, you know we did have a good time, and uh, I, I don't think she would be too hard on me that uh, I wrote the story. I think she'd enjoy it. Yeah. I think you touched on it a little bit, but what do you what do you hope people take away from the book and the story? Like, is there anything particular um, that you know you want readers to sort of take away from it? I think what I hope people will understand is that Reebok is not just a name; it's not just a pair of shoes that they've worn. That there is um, there's a story behind it. There is something you can go back, you can feel it, you can touch it. So that when you do put those shoes on, you you can think of 1895. You can think of that s- small shop there when my grandfather started to make these shoes. I, I hope they learn um, that there is the depth to Reebok. 
that, that maybe they don't know. In fact, one of the reasons that I, I wrote it is because we have Wikipedia, uh, and you look at Wikipedia, and there's half a dozen different stories about this and about that, and all of them are wrong. And so one mm-hmm. of the things, whilst, whilst people did say, why don't you write your, your story? I think one of the things is to put things right, to give people a continuous story. And so many people say, well, yeah, uh, this is J.W. Foster. It goes back to 1895, and they changed the name to make it more sexy. You know, it's like, uh, no, that's not how that's not how it happened. You know, there's a story in there, mm-hmm. not just changing the name. There's a, a family, and that family, uh, starting with my grandfather, uh, that DNA is in that company and and in that name. And so, I hope that comes across that people enjoy the journey as much as I enjoyed the journey and but realize there's a lot of tough things happen along the journey and and that's the value that comes out as Reebok so when they buy that pair of Reebok they, they really feel there's a story in there well Joe thank you so much for sharing your story and you know we both had such a great time reading your book and we'll definitely finish it up as well and definitely talk about it with our friends and folks that we know that will be interested in it's just such an inspirational story of, you know, grit and just perseverance. Because I think you mentioned in the book, it took 31 years to really make that business a success. And I think a lot of people think that things like this happen overnight uh, without realizing, you know, how much work goes into success. Um, and clearly, you had your eyes on the prize. And, you know, I'm certain that this book will achieve the same amount of success that Reebok has and did. Uh, but you know, just thank you so much. And, uh, we're, we're so lucky to have this opportunity to chat with you and, uh, hear from you. And we hope that you continue to inspire hundreds and thousands of people around the world. Well, it's been a real pleasure and thank you for those, uh, those kind words. And I also hope that, uh, the book does inspire that people can look on it and say, yes, you can do this. So thank you very much. It's been really good. Likewise. Thank you. Joe. Thanks, Joe.